The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the second episode of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, March 18th, and in this podcast, we will talk about the latest updates from Ukraine. We'll also give you some updates on European leader summits, formation of a regional government in Spain, and fears of a housing crisis in Germany. Here you'll also find the best editorials and opinion pieces related to the war in Ukraine and its relationship with the media, as well as the consequences of the conflict on energy supply. But before we get into it, let's start with the most important news of the week. So, the first update is about, you guessed it, the war in Ukraine. The number of refugees continues to rise. According to the UN, it has exceeded 3 million people. In addition, every second that passes, a Ukrainian child is forced to flee the country. The Russian offensive against some cities intensifies, in particular Mariupol. So far, in this city, records indicate 2,500 victims. But a war is also a clash of declarations. On Wednesday, the U.S. President Joe Biden called Putin a war criminal. The Kremlin replied, describing Biden's words as unacceptable and an unforgivable rhetoric. Meanwhile, diplomacy is not standing by. Negotiations are ongoing to reach a peace agreement, but this week the Ukrainian foreign minister stated that the Russian and Ukrainian delegations are far from breaching an agreement. Over the course of this week, the conflict in Eastern Europe has been the focus of several meetings between prime ministers and heads of state. At the end of last week, an informal meeting of European heads of state and government was held in Versailles, France. Two issues were discussed. The first, financing the purchase of arms to support Ukraine. The second, how to make the European Union independent from Russian gas and oil. On the first point, it was decided that 500 million euros will be allocated for the purchase of the military equipment for Ukraine. The energy question instead is more complicated. The European Commission has already decided to reduce Russian gas imports by two-thirds within the year. However, it seems that Europe will not be able to become independent of Russian fuels before 2030. Speaking of formal meetings instead, a summit of the prime ministers and heads of state of the EU, Baltic and Scandinavian countries plus the Netherlands, the UK and Iceland was held in the UK this week. The focus of the meeting was the strengthening of collective defensive capabilities and again, energy independence from the Russian fossil fuels. But the summit also discussed longer-term goals such as rebuilding Ukraine after the war and how to limit Russian influence on their economies. Meanwhile, on the other side of Europe, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz met with Turkish President Erdogan in Ankara. At the press conference, both called for an early reaching of a ceasefire between Ukraine and Russia. Scholz also thanked Erdogan for closing the Bosphorus Strait to Russian warships. The German Chancellor then stressed that the Russian aggression of Ukraine is increasingly isolating Putin's country in the international community. Back in Eastern Europe on Tuesday, the Prime Ministers of Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovenia went to Kiev to show their support to the Ukrainian people. The Polish Prime Minister said that he is concerned that Russian aims may, in the future, go beyond Ukraine and all the way to his own country. 
As we said, the war is creating millions of refugees who are fleeing to other European countries, such as Germany. One of the basic needs of a migrant fleeing a war is finding home. But it may not be that simple. The German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung has in fact published an article titled 100 Applications, One Apartment. The article cites a study according to which up to 500,000 additional apartments would be needed to accommodate people fleeing Ukraine, almost half of which would have to be newly built. The political consequences of the war in Ukraine particularly affect the countries closest to the Kremlin, such as Hungary. In April, Hungarians will be called upon to elect the parliament and prime minister, currently Viktor Orban. The country's government, which has very close ties with Russia, is currently trying to play in both camps, says Marius Dragomir, director of the Center for Media, Data and Society at the Central European University in an interview for Euroactive. While on the one hand, the Hungarian government has supported the sanctions against Russia, on the other hand, it has condemned Brussels for the negative effects on the economy. Now we jump from an upcoming election to one that has already taken place, and that is the Spanish regional elections in Castilla y León. A month after the vote, at the end of last week, the far-right party Vox reached an agreement with the institutional right-wing popular party to form a government. This is the first time since the fall of Franco's regime that a far-right party has come to power in Spain. And now let's move on to some journalistic commentaries. The first selection focuses on the best editorials related to the impact that the war between Russia and Ukraine is having on the media. Let's start with the Belgian newspaper La Libre. I left Russia, my country, to avoid going to prison. My crime? Being an independent journalist. Roman Badanin tells La Libre. Badanin is a journalist, researcher and founder and editor-in-chief of Media Agentstva and formerly Projekt. Badanin starts from his personal experience and then widens his gaze on the repression of press freedom implemented by the Kremlin. Projekt, the website he founded, has come under the crosshairs of Vladimir Putin's repressive apparatus and has been declared an undesirable organization. And Badanin and his colleagues foreign agents, prompting him to flee to the United States. In Russia, Badanin explains, any journalist who calls what is happening in Ukraine a war risks up to 15 years in prison. The risk of being in prison for a long time was faced by Russian journalist Marina Ovsyanikova. The journalist recently became famous for displaying an anti-war sign during a Russian state TV news program. Despotic political regimes with totalitarian tendencies like Putin's Russia are afraid of one thing only, the truth, writes Gian Cristiano Desiderio in the newspaper Corriere della Sera. Ovsianikova was temporarily detained for her protest, but Desiderio reminds us that this is not the first notorious case of repression on the freedom of expression. If it is possible to kill Anna Politkovskaya, it is impossible to kill the truth. If it's possible to imprison Alexei Navalny, it is impossible to jail the truth. The journalist continues citing two other cases. Despite the efforts put in place by the Russian regime, however, for Desiderio, the truth always resurfaces. 
But the media world isn't just made up of journalists. It's also made up of artists, musicians, and athletes. A commentary signed by the newsroom of the Spanish media El País points out that recent cancellations of sports and cultural events related to Russian Federation or artists could be compared to the Kremlin's censorship. We must be careful not to consider every Russian sportsman, artist, musician, or writer as a spokesman for President Vladimir Putin, warns the Spanish publication. In fact, it should not be forgotten that the Russian government has also been criticized from within its own country. For example, through an anti-war manifesto signed by the directors of theaters in Moscow and St. Petersburg. The article continues. It is therefore necessary to distinguish between the aggression decided by Putin Putin and the Russian culture as a whole, so as to not ostracize Russian culture even outside Russia. The article concludes. The limits to freedom of press and expression are cause for concern, but there is also another aspect of the conflict in Ukraine that troubles Europe and the world and that is the dependence on Russian fossil fuels. Each country is trying to find a remedy to this uh, problem. Let's stay in Italy and on the pages of the Corriere della Sera. The title of Stefano Agnoli's article couldn't be more explicit. It's time for an energy policy. Agnoli begins by explaining how energy plays several roles. It is a commodity, a resource to be guaranteed, a weapon of geopolitics, and finally an environmental resource as imposed by global warming. How to balance all these apparently irreconcilable aspects? As of now, it is impossible to have energy at low prices, abundant for everyone, safe and without endangering the environment, the journalist reminds us. Agnoli then touches again on his own article titled writing, that's why something called energy policy needs to exist, that is, an attempt to design a future that minimizes damages and maximizes benefits. In Italy, we haven't had an energy policy for years, but the current crisis could give our country the push it needs to equip itself with a vision and planning capabilities. Across the channel, however, the Times' Alice Thompson is very clear on what the UK should do – rely on wind power. It's becoming increasingly clear that Britain needs to become independent in energy production, the journalist argues, but we can't reignite coal-fired power stations or cut down trees to keep warm. According to Octopus Energy, England's fifth-largest energy supplier, it would only take two years to become independent from Russian gas. There are 11,000 wind turbines in the UK, explains an octopus representative. 3,000 more would be enough, a totally achievable target. It's a rare win-win situation, Thompson concludes. By swinging the country towards renewables, we will have set ourselves up not just to avoid being beholden to corrupt or aggressive regimes, but to meet our net zero goals by 2050. Ultimately, it could be more cost-effective too. The European energy situation is also being closely followed across the ocean. In the New York Times, economist Paul Krugman analyzes the problem of Germany's dependence on Russian gas. Russia is a key supplier of a commodity that Germany will have difficulty finding elsewhere. Gas is the opening line of the analysis. 55% of all gas imported by Germany comes from Russia, The Economist notes. A wide range of economic sanctions have been imposed on the Putin regime, but among them there are no restrictions on gas sales. 
Krugman clarifies. In the short term, it should not be too difficult cutting Russian gas imports by at least 30%, but 30% is still far from 55%. A total cut could be possible, but could also lead to a moderate recession due to rising prices of some consumer goods. Such a drastic measure would have been unthinkable until a month ago, but then again, so was war. The latest opinion piece on the topic stems from the Belgian newspaper Le Soir. Journalist Bernard de Monti explains how his country's government is trying to manage the issue of rising costs of energy for ordinary citizens, which is of course related to the overall higher cost of gas. But he also points out that what has been done so far is not enough. COVID has shown us how the state must try to absorb the consequences that affect the purchasing power of citizens, Dimonti writes. Extending welfare to the poorest households is not a sufficient measure, notes the Belgian journalist. He argues for a more equitable wealth redistribution of income as a solution. The aim must be, he concludes, to prevent today's war in Ukraine from overwhelming families' wallets and to prevent a future event from making the situation even worse. And we are at the end of the second episode of The Window on the World. But before finishing up, it's important to note that the next Monday, the meeting of European Foreign and Defense Ministers will be taking place and we will be closely following, as the main topic discussed will be the Ukrainian war, but also the EU's approach to defense and security over the next 5 to 10 years. We will discuss all of this in the next episode of The Window on the World. The editorial research and writing for this episode was done by my colleague Daniele Ruzza. And behind the mic, it's me, your host, Alexandra Napanich. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, take care and goodbye.